Good morning. Thank you so much for joining in, Temple family. Uh, I know this isn't how you wanted us to connect. For many of you, I know you're disappointed by this, and we are too. Uh, but thank you for being flexible and uh, for staying faithful and staying friendly. That's a phrase that we've used a lot over the last couple of months and um, fits well with the heart of what we're going to focus on this morning because uh, we're in week two of this series called Unfriend, Recovering Friendship in a Cancel Culture. In this day and age, we, we mentioned two weeks ago that the word friend has kind of become a little cheap. It's become a little shallow. Matter of fact, sometimes we've seen that shallowness and how quick we end friendships, how just through a click we unfriend someone. And, and truly, we're, we're living in an interesting moment. The word friend has never men, meant what it seems to mean today. And we want to recover that because we think friendship is a beautiful thing. We think as the people of God, uh, we've got a great perspective of friendship because we've been made friends of God. Uh, Lord willing, we'll talk more about that on next Sunday. But th- this, this idea of unfriending uh, began our conversation by looking at the, the really popular show called The Walking Dead. We talked about um, how this show about zombies began with a really contagious virus that turned ordinary, kind people into cannibals where they were just devouring one another to try to survive, and, and that they were untrusting and, and dishonest and, and just so ugly, trying to burn everything down. And, and in the same way, we're, as the people of God, we're raised to walk in newness of life. And so we're seeking to, to because of the work of Jesus in us, be the walking living. Uh, amidst maybe In the midst of a culture of walking dead, we want to be the walking living, and we do that because of what Christ has done for us. As I've been in quarantine this week, I've kind of mostly just interacted with the world at large through the medium of social media. And I got to tell you, like that filter, you know, your camera, you can have filters. The filter of social media right now, pretty rough, right? Pretty ugly. And it got me thinking that this whole series revolves around recovering a definition of friendship from the scriptures, right? And what about the definition, I began to think, of social media? And so I went to Webster's Dictionary uh, online, and I started to look up what does social media mean. And the first definition for social is the generic one that you're probably thinking of. It just means a social setting is a group, right? Just multiple people is social, right? But as you dig deeper into the meaning of the word social, back when it was uh, originally intended to have meaning in the English language, there's this beautiful explanation that social is meant to mean marked by pleasant companionship. Man, that's awesome. That that the, it would be marked by pleasant companionship. Relating to, the definition continues, relating to the welfare of human beings. So this genuine companionship that's pleasant for the good, for the welfare of humankind. Social media. What if it really was pleasant companionship for the good, for the welfare of humankind? That's pretty cool. Then I looked up the word media, which comes from the word medium, an avenue or a a medium of conveyance or expression. It's just an opportunity to express and actually comes from the Latin word media is voice. To have a voice or to give a voice to someone else. And I just have to think, as as we're trying to recover in a cancel culture, the, the concept and the idea of friendship. Like, what if our social media and our relationships and the way we carried ourselves with our families and in our workplaces, what if it was defined 
as having a voice and helping give a voice of companionship for the good, for the welfare of humankind. Like, what if that was the social media reality of the people of God? I love that thought, that, that we're, we're having a voice and giving a voice for good because of what God's done in our life. And so that's what we're going to continue to look at this morning. Grab your Bible, if you would, please, if you don't have one with you, or if you usually use your phone and you're watching me on your phone, the scripture will be down here at the bottom of the screen. So don't worry. But I still want you to declare this together because I think it's good for our hearts. And especially if you're watching with somebody else, it's good for their hearts to hear you say this. And so let's remind ourselves of our creed this morning and say it with conviction. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. So, Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 23 again. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Again, circling back to where we began two weeks ago. We'll look at the text, do a quick review of what we looked at two weeks ago in case you weren't watching online or if you weren't able to be there. Um, And then we'll dive into the rest of what I think God has for us this morning. 1 Samuel 23 is the ending. It's the final chapter of the most famous friendship in the Bible, the friendship of David and Jonathan, of who would become King David and the son of the current king, Saul, Jonathan. Jonathan David's friendship uh, is one that is noteworthy, and and we're really just trying to fast forward the friendship to the the final time they meet. So 1 Samuel chapter 23, beginning in verse number 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. Uh, He's coming to kill him. By the way, the the reason David knows that is because Jonathan saved his life. He gave him a heads up. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went, important words there, to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. That's the foundation for their friendship. He said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you or second to you, right? Saul my father also knows this. And then verse 18 the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained in Horsh. Jonathan went home. They never saw each other alive again in this life, this great friendship. And the first observation that we made two weeks ago is that friends begin with God. That the, the foundation of a true friendship is the God who created us. That because we both bear his image, because we're both called according to his glory and called according to his purposes, that's the establishment of our friendship. And so true friends don't have to have everything in common, just the most important thing, that we're seeking to follow after Jesus and be conformed to the image of Jesus and to raise our kids to do the same and and, and growing in Christ, that that's the foundation of a true friendship. A true friendship is that we went to the same college or we cheer for the same sports team or we work uh, side by side in, in the same collection of cubicles or our wives are friends and so therefore we have to hang out or we're related so we have to kind of be friends or whatever. No, that true friendship is united because we are following after God together. That true friendship begins with the person of our creator. And then we said, second, friends show up. 
Just like Jonathan came and met David, before he strengthened his hand in God, he had to show up, right? And true friends show up in the hard places. They show up in the difficult moments. They don't bail. They don't go, oh, I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to drift away. Man, that's self-protection. That's, that's self-love, not loving a friend. Friends show up. They're, they're there for one another in the difficult times. As a matter of fact, we believe that God gives us friends in the good times for the bad times. That's where real friendship takes root. We'd been here at Temple for a couple of years before I lost my brother Mark. And when I lost my brother Mark, some of us who were companions, we became friends because you showed up. You, you brought meals. You watched our kids. You, you showed yourself friendly in the hardest moment that we had faced in our life. That's what friends do. That's where friendships are, are forged. Friends show up. The, the last thing we looked at uh, two weeks ago is that friends sacrifice. Friends lay down their lives for one another. The, the, the first time that David and Jonathan meet, we kind of skipped ahead and, and looked at chapter 18 two weeks ago. The first time they meet is right after, go figure, chapter 17. Chapter 17 is the story of David and Goliath. Jonathan watches that. He, he, he sees David have this encounter with his father, King Saul. And it says they instantly became friends. And Jonathan does something. He takes off his royal robe and gives it to David the first time they meet. The first time they meet, he gives him his sword and, and his, his belt, which is another piece of armor. Like the first thing Jonathan does is dishonor, uh, dis, rather disarm himself out of honor for his friend. The true friend's sacrifice. We're, we're laying down our lives for one another. That we're not just there when it's easy. And so much of modern friendship is, is just based on, man, I'm friends with you because you're easy to be friends with. And, and there's not really this sacrificial concept of, man, I'm laying my life down. I'm, I'm inconveniencing myself for your good, for your welfare, for, for the, the, the flourishing of your family. I, I want to be there. Like, how can I sacrifice? How can I help? That's what true friendship does. This idea that, that Saul said, I'll be, or that uh, Jonathan, rather, said, I'll be next to you, or I'll be second to you, right? Not I'm, not I'm, I'm second, I'm third. That, that God is first in my life, and then I'm laying my life down for my friends, and I'll be after that, somewhere down the list, man, that, that we're sacrificing. And that's the heart of Jesus. We pick back up today, and, and, and we circle into the next idea. And that is, a true biblical definition of friendship says that friends commit. Friends commit. In our text, we just saw that they they reunite here. This is technically in a cave. Like they're hiding out, scared for his life, David is. But verse 18 says at the end of this conversation, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They made a covenant before the Lord. And the reason I think that's important is if you remember from two weeks ago, or maybe if, if you weren't watching, you didn't know this, but but what we find out the first time they ever meet in chapter 18, verse 3, tells us that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan said, man, I'm going to serve you, and I'm making a covenant about that. Literally, the first time they met, they entered into covenant. And then the last time they ever met, they entered into a covenant. They bookended their friendship with commitment, with with enduring covenant. That's so amazing. That, that truly is the opposite picture of a cancel culture that says, man, I call you my friend unless you do anything that I can't associate with and then you're dead to me. And Jonathan 
told David, man, we're going to enter into a covenant together. And had Jonathan not died on the battlefield, had he lived long enough, I choose to believe that in David's future failures, Jonathan would have remained a faithful friend who confronted him. Maybe God wouldn't have had to send the prophet to confront David. Maybe Jonathan would have confronted David. I don't know, but in those difficult moments, I believe there would have been enduring because the friendship wasn't based on convenience. It was based on covenant. It was based on a promise. We talked two weeks ago about this idea of having a spirit of offense, that we get so offended by everything. We're so defensive. We take everything so personal. The fact is, most of your friends do not mean to hurt your feelings. They don't mean to to respond the wrong way. They don't mean for that text to be read that way. They don't mean to forget your birthday. They don't mean to to forget to, to pick up the thing you want them to. Like Most people in your life that you consider a friend are not actually out to get you. Matter of fact, it's kind of narcissistic that we think the whole world's out to get us. No, man, the whole world's just trying to survive right now. Have you seen 2020? Like, everybody's not to get you. And, and we take this stuff so personal, and I, I just can't help but think about the heart of our Savior. I can't help but think about the heart of Jesus. Do you know one of the coolest names for Jesus? He has a lot of different names in the Bible. One of the coolest names of Jesus is he's called a friend of sinners. How awesome is that? Jesus is a friend with busted up broken people who aren't very good friends back. And here's the deal. Here's the thing about being a friend of sinners. There's a whole lot of areas of my life that I'm not very much like Jesus. But one of the ways that I am like Jesus is I also am a friend of sinners. Do you know why? Because every friend I have is just as big of a sinner as me. (laughs) Guess what? We're all friends of sinners. If you have any friends, (laughs) then just like Jesus, you're a friend of sinners, which means our friends are going to hurt us. Our friends are going to let us down. Our friends are going to make mistakes. Our friends might actually blow it big time, man. Like they, they might completely go off the rails and make a train wreck of their life. And we might get caught in the crossfire. That's what happens when we're friends with sinners. We are friends with broken people. And it amazes me how I watch people who claim to be followers of the friend of sinners, and as soon as a friend hurts their feelings by acting like a sinner, they're done with them. Man, listen, we're the people who are met by Jesus. He calls us friends even though we were enemies. We'll talk more about that next week. Man, we're the people who should be able to endure in those relationships. I can't tell you the the number of times being in church my whole life and, and being in ministry almost all of my adult life, I can't believe how many people I've watched go church hopping and every time they get their feelings hurt or somebody offends them, they go to another church down the street. Man, here's the deal. That's not just a poor understanding of church. That's a poor understanding of the gospel. Because somehow we have forgotten that we're the broken sinners that Jesus pursues and makes us friends. And if we recognize that, we wouldn't expect anybody else to be Jesus. We're going to extend grace to them because they're just as busted up as us. This idea of a cancel culture could not be further opposed to the heart of Jesus. He's not done with people when they blow it. Now, he doesn't endorse that. He goes and and meets us in our sin and transforms us. And I don't think friends let friends hurt one another without a conversation, but we don't bail on each other. The fact is your friend might have different political views. Instead of being done with them, have a grown-up conversation, a healthy conversation with them. Maybe you've got a friend who's just straight up done something hurtful. What if they don't even know? 
Give them the chance to make it right. Give them the chance to hear your heart. Friends commit. Friends enter into a covenant that say there's something bigger than me going here. And you know, without that grace, failure becomes crushing. In my worst moments, in my greatest failures, if I hadn't had some friends who said, I'm not going to give up on you, I'm going to keep walking with you, I'm going to see you restored, I'm going to see your life made whole, I don't know where I'd be today. I mean, if we don't have enduring, covenanted friends, then failure, well, it's critical. It's, it's the end. It's, it's the end. And, and I think part of the problem that, that we're so quick to be done with people comes from the way we view the world. I was reading a great article by the organization called Axis. I've mentioned them a lot. Awesome stuff, man. They put out such great stuff. But in there they were talking about cancel culture in this one article, and they said, wouldn't it be so convenient? Wouldn't it be so easy? Wouldn't it be so great if life really was this simple? There's bad people and there's good people. And if life were that simple, then then the job of the good people, which clearly would be us, right, then our job is to find the bad people, call out the bad people, and do away with them. Either silence them or eliminate their platform or shut them down. Man, we, we just got to shut them down. Wouldn't that make life so much simpler? We could round up all the bad people and finally have peace in the world. But here's the problem. The gospel begins by us acknowledging we're the bad people and there's only ever been one good. And it was God himself in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact is he has rounded up all the bad people so that he can pour his grace out on them, so that he can lay his life down for them, so that the cross of Jesus Christ could make them called good, right, righteous. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did for us. The gospel tears down this illusion of of the good people and the bad people because we recognize, hear me, all of us, every single one of us have a profound capacity to hurt and to heal. The fact is, many of us have, have done things, we've said things, we've experienced things that we had previously said we would never. We've blown it big time enough to know that we're not the ones who have it all together. The world is messy because we are messy. And we need the same grace that a covenant calls us to extend to one another. It shouldn't surprise us to find brokenness in other people and dysfunction in ourselves because we're broken. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came because we couldn't fix ourselves. He's the one who fulfilled his covenant to redeem and restore and rescue humankind. And we now live out of that grace with one another. We endure. Our friendships endure because we've experienced the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God rescuing us and redeeming us. Friends, commit. Real quick, let me move on and say this. And I just mentioned it a little bit, but I want to park here. Friends heal. In the biblical definition of friendship, I believe friends help heal one another's hurts. Now, we're not actually the healers. We believe there is a healer, but hang with me on this. True friends experience hurt and help speak healing into that place that that hurt came from. Because hurt people hurt people. It's more than the title of a book. It's a reality of life. Friends enter into that hurt. 
and help offer as the extension of the gospel of grace healing to the true hurts of our closest friends. It's interesting that that we see Jonathan being such a sacrificial and and such a covenantal friend to David. And and I got to admit that this thought I'm about to share, I didn't come up with this. This came from Mark Buchanan, a great author. He talks about the the idea that, that the lack of jealousy we see in Jonathan, like how is he not jealous of David? How is he not threatened by David? How doesn't he, how does he not view David as a rival, right? Like he's the one who's supposed to get the throne. How could this happen? And then Buchanan guesses this. What if it's because Jonathan has experienced healing from his father's wounds? Many people live life with wounds from their earthly fathers. And if there's anybody that we can assume had earthly father wounds, it's got to be Jonathan. We don't know a ton about his relationship with King Saul. But we do know that Saul publicly calls Jonathan the son of a rebellious woman which is a really nice way that the Bible kind of changes that language into English for us. He publicly bashes Jonathan's mom in like a cursing way. And then, so we know that about the relationship. What else do we know? We know Saul tried to execute Jonathan, tried to murder him. Like not yelled at him, beat him up, threw stuff at him. Like he threw a sword at him. He threw a spear rather at him. He tried to murder him, right? Like, I've not had a lot of stories. I've, I've done a lot of uh, conversations with, had a lot of conversations with people who have deep father wounds. I've never had somebody say, my dad tried to commit murder for me. And Saul not only tried to kill Jonathan, he did it twice. <laughs> like, twice Saul tried to murder Jonathan. That, my friends, is a father wound. Like, that is a deeply broken relationship. But I believe for Jonathan to show up in the hard places and strengthen David's hand in God, for that to happen, for that to work, I believe Jonathan must have experienced the strength of God, the healing hand of God in his own life. A principle of life is that we can't give what we don't possess. I believe And I know that's a stretch. And I know we don't read how that happened or where that happened. Jonathan clearly had his eyes and his heart set towards God. That's the only way I believe you can be healed from those kind of wounds. The only way you can move forward from that kind of brokenness clearly. Clearly, he had experienced something in God that changed the way he related to other people. And that offered healing to David. That offered hope to David. What I believe with all my heart is that the hurts that God has brought you through aren't just for you. The healing that God has brought to you isn't just for you. He wants to bless bless others in that. The fact is, I've had a lot of conversations with people about their father wounds, because I've been open and honest about the father wounds God's had to bring healing into my life for. They were crippling me. They were ruining my relationship with him and with others. It's still a battle that, that I fight even to this day. But the fact is, God's begun to unveil a little bit of healing in that, enough that when I talk about it, other people go, hey, me too. For some of you, that's where our friendship really finds its foundations, those conversations. When when I lost my brother to suicide, I decided not to be silent about that. And I've got friendships that are open doors now because somebody reached out in the moment where they were affected by suicide, whether it was their own thoughts or a loved one or a friend. And the fact is, when we talk about our hurts, 
That's where we find healing. If you're carrying yourself where you only want everybody to see your strengths, God's not going to be able to heal a lot of people through that. But if we're honest enough about the healing that God's brought into our life, then we can be the kind of friends that walk with one another towards healing. And I don't know about you, I, I, I enjoy, I am ministered to, I want to be around people who are real about their brokenness and who are growing towards God, not people who pretend to have it all together and just make me feel worse about myself for being so human, right? Friends heal. They walk together towards healing from our deepest wounds. And here's where we'll end our time together this morning. Friends reveal Jesus. Like a true friendship, just like a biblical marriage, reveals the mystery of Christ's love for humankind. In, in the same way that, that, that a friendship begins with God, I believe it reveals God. It lets the world see a picture of Jesus' love for us. We see this in Jonathan. Jonathan had the right of the throne. And in the very nature of a king, Jonathan did not consider equality with the king something to be grasped. But instead he humbled himself. He emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. Sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2. It's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is called the son of David, but it's really Jonathan who looks more like Jesus. David's called the man after God's own heart, but it's Jonathan who looks more like the heart of God. The one who lays down royal rights in order to befriend someone who's unworthy. Someone that could be perceived as an offense or a threat, pursues friendship, enters into covenant, and does whatever it takes to fulfill the covenant. That's what Jesus does for us. When we love one another, we're letting the world see the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. Jesus makes us friends. Real quick, as we're, as we're ending together, I want to look at two more texts. And I, I want to focus now, uh, for the last couple of minutes together, instead of David and Jonathan, let's just look at Jesus. In Jesus' final moment with the disciples in the upper room when he is gathering together for what we call the Last Supper, eating this final meal with his friends, John chapter 15, he tells the disciples this, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants. Servant and know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. One author said they embarked as a master with servants, but they arrived as friends. Jesus took this group of people and made them his friends, and they changed the world. They changed the world by living out that friendship, by loving other people the way that they had been loved by God. And I love it. I was reading something by Bob Goff a couple weeks ago. He's like, these are the same people. Remember this. They walked into a town that didn't want to hear what Jesus said, and here was their advice. Jesus, why don't you call down fire from heaven and destroy this entire city because they don't like what you have to say, right? And Jesus doesn't go, what is wrong with you people? Like, I'm not going to burn a city to the ground because they don't. He just gently takes them to the next city and, and continues to patiently love this ragtag group of guys. For all the ways that they got it wrong, they were still his friends, right? Jesus made them friends even though they didn't understand, according to the New Testament, Half of what Jesus was teaching them. They were called because they were loved. They were invited because they were wanted. Their value wasn't dependent on their understanding, their behavior, their performance. No, their value was based on their identity as the friends of the Son of the living God. And when that's our identity, we can love one another out of that love in a way that the world sees 
Not the walking dead, but the walking living. In the great uh, set of books by Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, maybe you've seen the movies. This story is the seemingly impossible task of, of taking the ring into the evil kingdom of Mordor and destroying it at the fiery source and and the unlikely heroes of this story, two hobbits, one named Frodo Baggins, and then his gardener named Sam, or Sam Wise, right? Frodo Baggins and Sam are essentially a friendship developing between a servant and his master. Over the course of the story, the, the friendship goes from awkward and from servant and master to truly as friends and one of the, the best definitions of this friendship is simply in, in this moment of decision in the story, where it's clear there's no coming back, where it seems to be clear that, that there's no return from this, that this is going to be a, a walk of, of death. The servant says to the master, right, Samwise says, I will go with you, Mr. Frodo. And that's what Jesus has done for us. I will walk through the valley of shadow of death with you. Therefore, he calls us to walk as friends who go with. But that's not the best line. The best line from, from the whole story is the moment where the journey is becoming unbearable for Frodo. He does not think he can continue. He doesn't think he can go on. He doesn't think he can fulfill the task in front of him. And this is what Samwise says. He says, I can't carry the ring, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. Because grace has met us where we are and is carrying us from this life to the next, we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can carry each other because we've been carried. And I think it's worth noting that Jesus was walking towards death when he told his servants, the disciples, I call you friends. He was on his way to death. He was eating his last meal with them. He knew what was ahead he was going to go face evil at its source. And in that moment, he didn't want servants. He wanted friends. Friends say, I might not can carry the burden you're carrying, but I'll carry you. Friends commit. Friends bring healing. Friends reveal the heart of Jesus to all of us. I, 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 I challenge you with, with this closing thought. Jesus leaves that conversation in John 15 and he goes out and prays for the followers of Jesus. Not just those guys in that room, but I believe he was praying for you and I. When you read that prayer in John 17, he's talking about us. I believe that with all my heart. And in there, Jesus prays. I want us to look at this. It'll just be on the screen. John 17, just four verses and then we're done. Jesus prays to his heavenly father and says, I do not ask for these only, not just the twelve. But for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. Look at these words. That they may be one, even as we are one. Literally. Jesus prayed that we would be as united as the Holy Trinity. Like as much as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. The, the, the triune God. The three in one. 
he prayed that that would be our level of unity. Is that incredible? And here's why. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is saying, man, I've modeled friendship. I've made friends out of servants so that the world might see this is what love looks like. God prayed that our covenant would be as strong as the triune God. That's some powerful friendship. That is the opposite of cancel culture. That's the opposite. Jesus prayed that way for me and for you. Today, as we meditate on being called the friends of God, may we live that out to the people in our circle, the people in our sphere of influence that we endure, we're not quick to be done, that we are, are not just there, we're, we're walking towards healing with one another. And we're doing this because the world needs to see Jesus. Maybe more today than at any time in life. If you don't know for sure you have a relationship with Jesus, there's a link here that says, can we talk? We'd love to have that conversation. It also gives you the opportunity just to share a prayer request. If there's any way that we can pray for you, please share that. You can write it on the comments on this video. We want to pray for you. If, if you need to, to talk about getting healing for some of your hurts so that you can walk with somebody else, maybe you're already walking with somebody and you just need some counsel about how to be a good friend. We are here. We love you. We're for you. And we want to walk with you in that. Just fill that link out. We'd be happy to connect. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making us friends. You pursued us and you sought us. And for that, we are humbly grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship him together.